Good morning, North Wake. So I'm Jerry Lassiter. I'm one of our elders here at North Wake, and I'm also a professor of Old Testament uh, here at Southeastern Seminary. So if you're a visitor this morning, we're very glad you're here. Uh, we've been going through uh, the Old Testament book of Hosea, and we are in the middle of this prophet, and in the middle of the book, this is where Hosea, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is explaining to Israel all of the ways that they have been unfaithful to Yahweh. So uh, some of you probably recognize this scene from a movie. Uh, so this is Ocean's 12. Uh, it's a funny movie, I enjoy it. Uh, the plot is that uh, two sets of thieves, actually a team of thieves, including Brad Pitt that you see here, um, are going against another thief trying to steal something. And in the middle of the night, this sort of dark figure that you see on your left, uh, that's the profile of George Clooney. So in the middle of the night, George Clooney shows up and uh, Brad Pitt opens the door in his t-shirt and George Clooney says, what are you doing? It's 5 a.m., morning of, meaning morning of the big heist. Why aren't you ready to go? And Brad Pitt's character holds up his watch and he says, it's 11 p.m., night before. And George Clooney gets this really confused look on his face and he goes, oh? And then reality begins to set in on George Clooney's character and he goes, oh. And then Brad Pitt makes this face right here. It's a funny scene. His character's name is Rusty. Rusty goes, oh. As the full reality of the situation dawns on these two guys, the rival thief has moved up the call time that was supposed to be at 5 a.m. to throw them off of their game on the night before the big heist. And as it turns out, George Clooney's character has had five shots of espresso, so they have no choice but to stay up all night watching Oprah Winfrey reruns, <laughs> waiting for the day of the big heist, right? And you say, well, what in the world does this have to do with the prophet Hosea? I'm glad you ask. <laughs> you see, Hosea and the other Old Testament prophets, they invite all of us to have our own oh moment. As we look at the things Israel did in the Old Testament to break God's heart or to sin against him, you and I can look today and we can ask ourselves, do I do those same things? And then we can have an oh, oh moment as we realize we do some of those same things to sin against Yahweh and to break his heart. So let's pray this morning and ask God to reveal himself in Hosea to us and help us to see uh, more clearly. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together as the church at North Wake, to be with brothers and sisters who love you, to pray for missionaries who are taking your gospel around the world. God, would you be with us as we look at your word in Hosea? Father, help us uh, to see past just an ancient historical book, stories of things Israel did. God, help us to see the heart that Hosea is going after, the heart that you sent him after of your people, to repent and to love you and to trust you for all things. Would you grant us that this morning, Father? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, take a look at the middle of Hosea chapter 7. We've got several chapters this morning, so we're just going to kind of skip a rock across the water and, and dip in at points. 
In uh, Hosea chapter 7, verse 8, we read Ephraim. Remember from Carson's sermon last week, uh, Ephraim, Samaria, Israel. These were all names for the northern ten tribes. Uh, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. And you say, well, what does that mean? Uh, we, we need the rest of Hosea to really flesh this out. Um, so further down in 7.11, uh, Hosea is going to tell us that uh, Israel, Ephraim, calls to Egypt and they go to Assyria. In 12.1, they're going to say they make a covenant with Assyria. They take oil to Egypt. Carson told us last week we're probably somewhere in 730s, maybe early 740s BC at this point in time in Israel's history. You and I know in 722 BC, Assyria is going to invade Israel and is going to carry the northern 10 tribes off into exile. And uh, 2 Kings records this for us. It tells us uh, the king of Assyria found treachery with the king of Israel. He, that is the king of Israel, had sent tribute to Egypt. Tribute was paid when you were in a covenant relationship national covenant relationship uh, in the Old Testament. And he, the king of Israel, did not send it to Assyria. So the king invaded all the land, and then in verse 6 of 2 Kings 17, he carried Israel away to Assyria. See, this is what gives rise to Hosea. Some of us have been asking the question, why all of this talk of unfaithfulness? Why all of this talk of you're cheating on me? We see it here just between these two nations. Israel doesn't have the strength and the power that they once had. So they decide to take matters into their own hands and they go find the two biggest kids on the playground of the ancient Near East. And that's the nations of Assyria in the north and Egypt in the south. And they make covenant relationships with both countries. And when Assyria finds out about this, Assyria gets angry. Assyria essentially is asking, wait a minute, what are you doing in a covenant relationship with Egypt? You're in a relationship with me. This won't stand. And you can imagine Yahweh through the prophet Hosea going, hey, you're actually in a covenant relationship with me. I'm the one you're cheating on here. So when we read in Hosea 7, 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. This is the background behind that. Ephraim, Israel, is running to everyone that they can run to, to form a relationship. So hear what God says about this. Ephraim is a cake not turned. I love the metaphors in the Minor Prophets, but sometimes they take a little bit of work to pull those metaphors out. So um, imagine mom or dad gets up in the morning and they go in the kitchen and they're going to cook pancakes, right? Everybody loves fresh homemade pancakes. And so they dollop the batter into the hot pan and it reaches that moment where you're pressing in the blueberries or the bananas or chocolate chips if you're at the Lasseter household. But then you don't flip it. And you wait and when the kids come and sit down or your spouse, you dollop out the pancake burned on the bottom and raw dough on the top. Ephraim is a cake, not turned. Something has gone horribly wrong. It goes on and it says, strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Remember when we just looked at verse 12 one a minute ago, or I read it to you, uh, that they carry oil to Egypt. See, as part of these relationships, they now have to take part of what they produce, and they have to give it away. So Israel's 
already worried about their place in the ancient world, so much so that they're forming relationships with other nations. And then they have to take what resources they have and they have to give them away. And so God says, your, your, your own strength is being devoured and you don't know it. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, Ephraim, and he knows it not. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, gray hair is a metaphor for wisdom. And so gray hair is a thing that you want. Uh, at other times, like with King David, it said he went down to his fathers in good gray hair. It's a euphemism for how close he is to death. For David, actually dead. So for Ephraim, God says, you're that close to death and you don't even realize it. So I ask my students all the time at Southeastern when we're looking through the minor prophets, right? Like help, help make this applicable. So what's the big deal of mixing themselves with the nations, right? And it's like, well, you shouldn't make covenant relationships with anybody that takes place of, that takes the place of your covenant relationship with Yahweh. So everybody in the congregation, me this morning, we're like, I don't think recently I've signed any contracts with anybody else, right? Gene Burris mentioned the devil went down to Georgia. I haven't competed for any golden fiddles. Haven't gone to the crossroads, made any deals so I can be the greatest guitar player, right? Like I'm off the hook here. So what I always tell my students though is, look, don't, don't just go for the low-hanging fruit, right? That's the low-hanging fruit. What's the real problem? Well, the real problem is Israel is concerned for their safety and their security. So again, they're going and finding those biggest kids on the playground and they're saying, you want to be my friend? You want to defend me? This is what a political covenant did. I'll pay you tribute. I'll belong to you. You defend me. You give me resources when I need it. So the problem is that they've gone to Egypt and Assyria for their security and their safety, and they're neglecting Yahweh. So Mary Catherine and I, over the past couple of weeks, we've, uh, we've asked several friends here at North Wake, what are those things that we find our safety and security in? If you'll uh, go to the next slide for me. And so this is sort of like a, a top five answers are on the board here. Um, but as we've talked to friends and we've said, what are those things that we do this in? These were some of the answers that we got. Um, we trust in the money that we make or maybe the career that we're in. Maybe we're not making a lot of money now, but there's the opportunity for that. And so that's what I put my faith and my trust in. Some people have said owning a home. Owning a home is how I know that I've made it. I, I have safety and security now in Wake Forest, Franklinton, Youngsville, Rollsville, wherever you live, because I own a home. I talked to one friend younger than me, and he said, you know, the, the point is um, that uh, I can't own a home in Wake Forest. They're too expensive. And he said, so that's why we're considering something like a, a tiny home or van life, right? So that, that doesn't apply to me. It's like, no, you, you realize the tiny home or the van life, right? That's still your safety and security. That's, that's the thing you're shooting for that you're like, once I have this, it'll be okay. Do we do that to the neglect of Yahweh? Do we trust more in that than we trust in him? Uh, others said, uh, I can wife or mom better than anyone, therefore I know my husband will never leave me. So just trusting in ability there. I talked to a single friend and he said, you know, relationship. And sometimes that's why it's really hard to get out of a relationship that you probably shouldn't be in but the safety and security of that relationship is, is just so much. Maybe sometimes it's the promise of a relationship. You know, when I meet that special someone, I won't have to pump my own gas anymore, or I won't 
you know, have to work all day and then come home and make food. There'll be somebody who can share in these responsibilities with me and, and that'll be it. Some said their health, some said their kids' health. As a dad, I can certainly agree with that one. Some said exercise, as if being at CrossFit eight days a week would keep you from getting a common cold. It doesn't, just so you know, that's a virus. But there are all these things. <laughs> Look, work out all day if you want to, right? Viruses still happen. There are all these things that when you and I stop and think about it, and we ask the question, what do I honestly put my safety and security into? Where do I put my time, my money, my hopes, my dreams? We can come up with a list like this one, probably a longer one. And this is actually the thing that got Israel in trouble. Their safety and security was now placed in these two other nations, not in Yahweh himself. And so the minor prophet invites you and I to reflect on this and think, are there those things that I place my faith and my security in? And then to go, oh, oh. And so we, we bring those things to God and we ask him to forgive us. Notice how in the next few verses, God continues talking about Ephraim. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. As they go, I'll spread my net over them. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. The very thing that they seek, safety and security, God says you're not going to get. Not there. Safety and security is controlled by Yahweh, not by allies or those things that we place faith and hope in. Notice in verse 13, I love verse 13, uh, there is a woe formula in all of the prophets. You've seen this, no doubt, if you've ever read Isaiah or any of the other prophets. And woe usually is meant to grab our attention. It's a, it's a lament over the people. In verse 13, it says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. You're like, well, how? I didn't, I didn't see that in those previous verses by placing their trust for safety and security in something other than Yahweh. And so verse 13 is another moment for us to stop and think about it and say, wait, 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 wait. So, so I may have made a mistake here, right? I, I may have placed a lot of trust and security in owning a home, but are you telling me that makes me a rebeller and a liar? I'm not. <laughs> Hosea is. And I'm not off the hook either, right? I'm, I'm right there. Yeah, when, that's how serious and how grave it is. That's why we read such strong language in Hosea about being unfaithful to Yahweh. Because when we do those things, that's exactly what it makes us, is rebellious and liars against Yahweh. Look down at the end of chapter 7, uh, verses 14 through 16. They do not cry to me from their hearts, but they wail upon their beds. Some of your English versions, this is the ESV, some of your English versions will say things like they howl, they cry out. 
It's a, it's a strong, this isn't just a, a small complaint. This is a, a large complaint or lament about the situation. Do we do that? I know I do that, right? So some of y'all know I drive an old truck. This is not the time that you want to be putting gas in an old truck, right? And so I will happily talk about that to anybody who wants to listen about, man, do you know what it cost me? to put gas in my truck this week. It's $100 to fill up a Honda minivan. Can you imagine a 1999 truck? Until I run into that friend, right, who actually, you know, runs a painting company or something. He's like, I fill up 15 vans every Monday morning, right? Note to self, don't complain to him anymore. Find a different friend I can complain to, <laughs> right? So, so we laugh, but the truth is, there are always those times where you and I We'll go to a friend or friends, plural, and we'll complain and we'll lament the situation that we're in. But we don't cry to Yahweh from the heart. And so again, this is the thing that gets Israel in trouble. They'll turn to all these other things. They'll complain loudly about them. But they don't run to Yahweh. So when we run into those things, whether it's something as silly as gas prices or something far more serious, do we run to Yahweh? Or do we just complain to friends who will listen to us, give us a pat on the back? I know, it's terrible right now, right? For grain and wine, this is the second part of verse 14, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Now some of your English versions have a different word there. The New American Standard says, they assemble themselves. Um, and so this is, uh, this is being a little interpretive. I understand what the ESV is doing here. So the ESV is uh, essentially taking the context of Hosea. The fact that Israel is trying to bring about on their own a particular outcome. And so they're interpreting this and they're saying essentially Israel's cutting themselves. That's how bad this is getting. They're making gashes because they want this to come about. Um, and so I understand that. I, I think that's a perfectly good translation. Um, I do, however, really like the New American Standard on this one, uh, where it says, uh, for grain and wine, they assemble themselves. Right? So the idea here is they're not trying to bring something about. They're not actually cutting. Um, but just for good food and good drink, this is why they'll all come out and be together. And to me, that really seems to fit the context here, right? So we've got safety and security in this other thing, not in Yahweh. We've got these problems and I'm complaining to all of my friends, but tell me there's gonna be a hangout time. There's gonna be really good food and really good drink there, covenant safe beverages, right? I work for Southeastern and I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna have a Coca-Cola and I'm gonna have some ribs and I'm gonna hang out with my friends. I think that's the indictment that God's actually leveling against Israel here is, you cry out, not to me, but to anyone who will listen. You're perfectly happy to call an assembly for food and for drink. So we have to pause again and we have to ask, God, do I do that? Are there times when things aren't going well and I really should be spending time with you, but instead I'll take whatever distraction comes? Oh. Yeah, I do that. 
Going on in verse 15 and 16, God says, although I trained and strengthened their arms, I gave Israel everything Israel had, they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. Right, so you see essentially the same thing there again as in verse 14. God says, oh, they come back, just not to me. And I love, again, metaphors in the Minor Prophets. They're so great, right? They're like a treacherous bow. Now, most of us in here don't use a bow and arrow enough that the metaphor as it is, you're just like, yes, immediately, I got it. It makes sense, right? So I was trying to think this one through. I was talking to my wife about it, and I was like, what's, like, I need just a really common, like, tool. And it has one job one job and it can't do that one job correctly and we we agreed it's like that knife we all have in the kitchen we've all got one of these knives you know this knife right so you get out the block of cheese and you set it on the counter and you're going to cut a piece of cheese and this knife as soon as you press it in curves to the right every single time and your block of cheese looks like a ramp for a bmx bicycle (laughs) instead of block of cheese why don't we throw that knife away it's worthless It's a deceptive knife. It has one job, cut, and it can't do it. Doesn't work on the butter either. Scoops the butter off to the side, right? (laughs) When you go home, please feel the freedom to throw that knife in the garbage. But this is the metaphor God's given here. Because of these things, Israel is a treacherous bow. It looks like a bow. It pulls back like a bow. But it doesn't work like it's supposed to. And so this sort of harkens us back to that. They've strayed, they've rebelled, they speak lives. Where we have to stop and go, God, is that me? Am I the treacherous knife? Do I look like a knife and I should act like a knife, but every time you want to use me, I just don't work. Is that me? Oh. Oh. Look with me at Hosea chapter 8. In Hosea 8, he says, set the trumpet to your lips. Typically in the Old Testament, especially in the Minor Prophets, if we're sounding a trumpet, it's a bad thing. In the book of Amos, you do this when there's a calamity in the city. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Again, that language harkening back to where we started in chapter 7 of there's gray hair on your head. You're close to death and you don't even realize it. Why? Because they have transgressed my covenant. See, Hosea's got a really unique perspective in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, dating Hosea in the 700s as we've been doing, Hosea may very well be the first Old Testament prophet who, of course, with the Holy Spirit, picks up on this notion of, hey, everybody in the ancient world knows what a covenant is. Covenants have existed since old Babylon. Think Abram before he became Abraham, right? So Genesis, right? Everybody knows what a covenant is. It's Israel in particular that the prophets talk about marriage as a covenant. And so it's this sort of one-to-one tie in Israel that gives the occasion for Hosea to use the metaphor, the living metaphor of Mary and Gomer, who is the unfaithful bride the entire time. 
And everybody's like, oh, that's not, that's not right. That's not okay. And so Hosea and the Holy Spirit can say, right. <laughs> so you see what it's like when you go making relationships with all these other nations and neglecting your relationship to Yahweh. And so because of that, chapter 8, God tells them flat out, you've broken my covenant. You've broken the relationship with me. You've rebelled against my law. And Hosea is speaking uh, here in verse 2. He says, to me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. There's overlap, by the way, between Hosea and Amos, both prophets to Israel. Parts of Isaiah is at the same time period, um, and parts of Micah. And so sometimes we can look at these other prophets and we can find these similar themes and veins going on in the Old Testament. And it's Isaiah 1-3. It's one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament um, where it talks about an ox knows its master's voice and a donkey its master's manger. See, an ox, a beast of burden, knows the voice of its master. And even a donkey which is a far more stubborn animal. This is why in the King James Version, it's called a jackace, right? So a worse animal at least knows where to get a meal. And then it goes on and it says, but Israel does not know. You see, we've moved from a beast of burden to an incredibly stubborn animal to the nation of Israel. And it says flatly, they don't know. And then it goes on, there's one line left, and it's the most heartbreaking of Isaiah 1-3. It says, my people. See, not just Israel, not just some nation in the ancient world. My people don't understand. It's a heartbreaking indictment. So in Hosea, when it says, to me they cry, my God, we, Israel, we know you. No. No at least not rightly. Not in such a way that they don't break the covenant. It goes on in verse three of Hosea eight, and it says, Israel has spurned the good. And you're like, okay, what in the world is the good? Again, this is, uh, this is common in the prophets, especially in these four that we've mentioned that overlap. Um, in Isaiah 117, Isaiah says, learn to do good. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor. Obtain justice for the orphan. Plead the widow's case. And in Micah 3.2, he says, you hate the good. You love evil. And it goes on farther down in Micah to say, you detest justice. You make the straight way crooked. You build with blood. You bribe. You practice divination for money. All those things that happen to ensure livelihood and safety and security and money and getting what we want. God says, no, 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 that's the opposite of good. Here's what good is. Verse 4 of Hosea, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. So there were political problems even in the ancient world and everybody wanted their political ruler who was going to do something for them. 
There's a great story in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, if you flip over there and read it later, um, where uh, the people want a king, and the prophet Samuel warns them, and the people say, no, we will have a king. And Samuel is heartbroken, and the Lord comforts him, and he says, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So Israel gets in trouble for trying to control the political things to get what they want instead of trusting in Yahweh. And we're invited in that to go, oh, oh. Verses 5 and 6, Hosea says, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. And you say, well, what is, what is this calf? What is, remember, Samaria is just another name for the northern ten tribes. So uh, if we look down in Hosea 10.5, the calf comes up again. It's a recurring theme in Hosea. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf at Beth Aven. So we have to go back here to 1 Kings uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12. It's the end of King Solomon's reign. King Solomon passes away and his son Rehoboam takes the throne. Rehoboam makes some really unwise decisions. And Jeroboam, I know that's confusing, Jeroboam becomes king in the north. And what he notices is that the people in the north are going back down to the temple to worship in the south. And he says, you know, if they keep this up, it's not going to be long until they just pledge their allegiance back to the king in the south. So Kings tells us he made two golden calves and he put one at Bethel and he put one way up in Dan. And he said, behold, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. So the first thing he does as king is establish idol worship in Israel. Uh, we know from the book of Joshua Joshua tells us that Ai, Bethel, and Beth Avon are all side by side. They're sort of a, a metropolis of the ancient world, if you will. So the calf of Samaria at Bethel, the calf at Beth Avon, no doubt references one of these golden calves. Uh, in fact, Amos will mention it as well in chapter 4. He'll say, uh, go down uh, to Bethel and sin. Again, this is another one where it's kind of easy just to take the low-hanging fruit, right? So we've all heard about idol worship before. We know um, idols are uh, these things that we place on the throne instead of God. And so we could even talk about some of the same things off of our list. We could talk about our house, or we could talk about that nice car that we have, our relationships. There are things that we make idols, and we essentially push Yahweh off the throne, and we set the idol down. But don't just go for the low-hanging fruit, right? Idols in the ancient world were also used to bring about a particular outcome, right? So it's sort of like a tool that I could use. So maybe I can convince Mary Catherine if I go home and buy a nice Fender Stratocaster, I can be Greg Wilson, right? So I'm going to use that tool to, you know, become the next Greg Wilson or Jimi Hendrix or name another famous Stratocaster player, right? It doesn't work that way. But how many times do you and I think if I had x then it would bring about it would ensure it would make sure that i have that's the way idols are used and here in hosea god is not happy with them 
You know, idols are a little odd in an American culture in the 21st century. We can still find them around the world. We can still find shrines. Some people would even have them in their home. They would stop by in the morning and light a candle and pray before they walked out. Um, But we have to ask the question, in our culture that doesn't necessarily use physical representations, is it the same thing if you and I just try to manipulate the forces and get what we want outside of Yahweh? That's effectively how idols are being used in the ancient world. And it's a way that God calls Israel out in Hosea and says, don't do that. That's it's not okay. And so you and I get this opportunity again to go, oh, oh. Prophets often work in patterns. And a pattern in the prophets is uh, they will name a sin that's going on. They'll give punishment for it. You and I actually already saw that. Remember when way back in chapter 7 when we started this morning, um, God said, uh, you're like a silly dove and I'm going to cast a net over you. So the, the very safety and security that you seek isn't going to happen. Right? There's, there's consequences for sin. There's punishment for sin. But prophets also work in restoration. And so if you'll look with me, we have to go all the way to Hosea chapter 10. There's a lot of opportunities in here to see what Israel's done wrong. But if we go all the way down to Hosea chapter 10, there's this great restoration passage, these couple of verses that occur here. In verses uh, 11, 12, and 13, God says, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. And I spared her fair neck. I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness on you. If you'll go to the last slide for me. You see, Hosea had no way of knowing fully what that meant. Maybe in Hosea's imagination, he's imagining something like you and I read in the second half of Ezekiel 37. At some point, God's going to call Israel. He's going to bring Israel back to himself. He's already said in Hosea, if you go back and read through all of our chapters this morning, that they're going to call to Egypt and go to Assyria. They're going to be buried in Memphis So maybe Hosea is imagining that God one day will restore Israel. But God had such a better plan in mind. One that we know because we have the full canon of Scripture. And so if you'll go to the 2 Corinthians passage for me. Thank you. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Not just a little righteous reign that we see in Hosea there, but in its true fulfillment, Christ's own righteousness given to you and I who call him Lord. That's something to celebrate. So there's probably at least three people, types of people here this morning. I'm one of them. 
Some of us come to Hosea and we kind of come with our arms crossed and we're like, book's not written to me, it's not for me, doesn't have anything to address to me, I'm not ancient Israel, in fact, I'm even under a new covenant. Why are we here? We're here because God invites us in to see how Israel sinned and broke his heart. And for us to ask the question, do I do that? Do I do those things? But the good news is, the eternal son, Jesus himself, came and he took on flesh. And he lived a perfect life. And he was tried unjustly and found guilty. And he was crucified on a cross and buried and he rose again on the third day the resurrected Lord. So that when you and I mess up, we're not just stuck in it. It's not just our responsibility to break up our fallow ground. God himself came and did that for us. And we can now have that righteousness. Romans 5.8 says that, but God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some of you this morning, no doubt, have found yourself in the story. Larry invited us to do that a couple of weeks ago. We're not Hosea. We're the unfaithful one. But we also don't know Christ. We know that we need rescue. We need this righteousness. Well, this morning, all you have to do is ask Christ to be your Savior. And you can have this kind of righteousness too. There's probably one other person here this morning, if you'll go to the last slide for me. Some of us lived a long time and then got saved. I got saved in college. So I had plenty of years to sin, as Peter talks about in the New Testament. Some of us have the testimony of even when we got saved, we knew there were things we weren't supposed to do, but we did them anyway. So we, like Israel, forsaked our covenant through Christ. And we went and we did what we wanted. And you remember last week, Carson talked about the movie reel, right? He said, you know, nothing is ever done in secret. What if we had to sit down if we had to watch the movie reel? We don't have to watch the movie reel. I carry my movie reel around with me. I got it right here, right? I know what I've done. I'll tell you what I've done. Sometimes that's just a really huge burden. It's really easy to pull out all the things that I've done to harm God. And so some of you this morning need to hear Romans 8, 1 and 2 as well. There is therefore, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So some of you have no problem identifying with Israel. You know you've messed up. But it's probably time to stop carrying the movie reel around with you. Because you have the righteousness of Christ. When God the Father looks on you, he doesn't see your sin. The accuser has nothing to bring if that courtroom that Carson described actually played out. It's not there. So put it down. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, Hosea, for the other prophets. Thank you for inviting us in to examine Israel and Judah and other nations of old. What they did to break your heart and to sin against you. 
God, when we ask the question, can we identify with someone in the story? Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would be able to do that, that we would know those things that we do that break your heart. God, if we are already in Christ Jesus, would you help us to agree with you on those things and would you forgive us of our sin and help us to repent from them? If we don't know you, Lord, would you make Jesus very real to us that we could come and we could lay these things down that we do and that we could have Christ's righteousness? Father, for those of us that do carry a movie reel around, we, we don't need a reminder. We, we're quick to know that in this story, we are not Hosea. We are not you. We're the sinful one. God, would you help us to find freedom and that through Jesus, there is no condemnation. Father, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There will be elders down front and some ladies from our women's ministry team if any of you need someone to pray with. Church,